It's about you, says the preternaturally chiseled woman with platinum blonde hair and tattoos. Your perk, your goals, your drive. This is about you, several more equally life athletes echo. What are you looking for? What are you going to come for? What do you need to be? Everybody needs something different, one adds, before the litany starts up again. What drives you? What motivates you? What inspires you? What lights you up? Everybody gets something different out of the experience, at least according to the advertisement, a 2017 two-minute commercial for the meditative cycling behemoth Soul Cycle. The Find It campaign, dreamed up by an ad agency, Laird and Partners, captures the essence of the fitness brand's sacralized promise. You see, SoulCycle isn't just selling an exercise class or a weight loss aid. It's selling a double ideal of purification, one simultaneously characterized by material improvement. You'll look like Michelle Obama or Lady Gaga, two notable SoulCycle alums, and by spiritual transcendence. You're not just pedaling on a bike to lose weight. You're pedaling to become a better person. To become, in the words plastered on the cycling room's walls, a renegade, a hero, a warrior. I don't know if you've been to a soul cycle class. Those words are from Tara Isabella Burton. But if you think about our culture, we have so many promises that are made that offer us not just an, an image that will be pleasing to other people or a, a sense of accomplishment, but they offer us meaning. And even if you dig down a little deeper than that, they offer us a sense of peace. The thing that we're all longing and aching for. And last week, what I wanted to do was to give us an overview of faith. Why is faith important, especially in a world such as ours? How has the demise of faith perhaps been oversold and overblown? Because when we look at the ground of how people actually live, what we find is that people haven't discarded faith, but rather they're finding it in all sorts of different places. Because Paul says that the righteous, those who walk with Jesus, will live by faith. For us, as the people of God, we have to come to see what faith is. In all of its implications, that faith is not just the belief that we take on. That it's not just about the things that we think with our mind, but it's about our way of living in the world. And all of this, all of this is encompassed in a loving, trusting union with Jesus. Faith is much bigger than the thoughts that we think in our head. And it's so vitally important that we begin to see what Jesus is calling us to when he says that we will live by faith. And the thing I want to focus on this week is one of the most significant blessings of faith. Do you ever think about all the goodness that comes your way because of Jesus? I think we tend to be a bit bashful about what God actually brings into our life. And I understand this, right? Like, we don't want to overpromise. Like, I will caveat things to death, right? Because I understand that people's experiences vary in so many ways. But sometimes, I, I think we have to see the goodness that God has brought forth, even when, friends, even when, friends, life can be really hard to caveat. But one of the significant benefits that that faith promises that it brings, that it often in, in really difficult circumstances will bring our way, is peace. 
Look at what Romans 5 says. Paul writes, therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Paul was very reticent to boast about anything that he had accomplished. In fact, he resisted the urge to do so in places like Corinthians. He says, I'm not going to boast about that. He says, you know what? I will boast about it. I'll boast in what Jesus has done. I'll boast in what Jesus has brought forth in my life. And Romans 5 tells us one of the benefits of faith that we have through Christ Jesus is peace. Now, peace is a universal pursuit. Have you ever seen Maslow's hierarchy of needs? You know, this sense that there's these physiological needs at the bottom that we all need food, air, water, those kinds of things, shelter to survive. And he sort of builds this pyramid, and as we go up the pyramid, as your physiological needs are met, the more than you can begin to explore these more ephemeral, interior sorts of needs, things like purpose and meaning or significance or faith. And I know what Maslow is trying to do. He's trying to conceptualize a taxonomy of different human needs, trying to make sense of them. But I would suggest that there's never a disconnect between the pursuit of the things that we know we need physically and our pursuit as people for peace. And Maslow sort of captures this. He puts safety in the bottom tier, in the, in the tier with food and shelter and water. And the scriptures are trying to always integrate life in our physical body with the life of the unseen spiritual soul, the thing behind the thing that we can't see. The scriptures are relentless in trying to capture that integration. Jesus, the word, becomes flesh. God is not content with concepts. God wants action lived out, a response to his grace. And the Bible's version of peace, the Bible's word, the, the Bible's picture for this sense, what is peace, is shalom. Shalom, this all-encompassing term where things are rightly ordered. Walter Brueggemann says, shalom is the substance of the biblical vision of one community embracing all creation. It refers to all those resources and factors that make communal harmony joyous and effective. It is well-being of a material, physical, historical kind, not idyllic pie in the sky, but salvation in the midst of trees and crops and enemies, in the very places where people always have to cope with anxiety, to struggle for survival and deal with temptation. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying shalom is not retreating to some ideal world in your mind. You know, not even the image of the sort of Zen person who, despite all of life's circumstances, just has this interior sense that everything's fine. No, Brueggemann's saying that in the midst of the world that is such as ours, a world of temptation and anxiety, a world of conflict, a world of strife, God brings his shalom. In the words of the psalmist, that we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He goes on to say, the consequences of justice and righteousness is shalom. An enduring Sabbath of joy and well-being. But the alternative is injustice and oppression. Leading to turmoil and anxiety which, with no chance of well-being. Brueggemann is showing us that, that this 
shalom that God desires to bring to us by faith is an integration of our lives, that we will see God's peace in the midst of the very lived realities of our world. And friends, one of the themes that guides the scriptures is if we don't have peace with God, we will be at war with ourselves and with one another. If we don't have peace with God, we will be at war with ourselves, within ourselves, and with one another. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, but he didn't mean a peace that we literally make from nothing. We don't create peace. God is the creator of peace. But as James says, God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Peace is a gift that God wants to give to us. Our, our culture has so many roads to peace on offer, you know, whether it be soul cycle, or whether you could fill in the blank with the way that you try to just find a little bit of peace during each day. But it, our, our culture offers all these ways that I think in our better sense, we sort of recognize our, as dead ends. Right? Like if somebody were to ask you, like you're doing something, and somebody's like, hey, can you tell me about that? This is why therapy is really helpful. Well, why are you doing that? What was that about? I think when you're able to sort of narrate beyond those impulse reactions, you're like, yeah, maybe that wasn't, that's not going to serve me the way I thought it would. Like one cookie, like was it was a joy and a celebration. Eight cookies might have been a, a, a sign that there might be something going on here that we need to talk about, right? This is from my own personal experience. <laughs> We try, even though we know that these roads won't lead to peace, we still tread them anyway. A couple of ways that we try to make peace, and maybe this describes just me, maybe this describes you. One way we try to make peace, we try to make peace through control. Peter, at the end of John's gospel, is in a weird sort of limbo. And if you read John's gospel, it's unclear. The timeline's a little bit fuzzy, because in, in John 20, like, it's clear that Jesus is raised from the dead. It's clear that his apostles have seen him. But in John 21, it's almost like that whole thing never happened. And so we don't know what's going on with the storytelling, whether this chapter has been sort of added in a different space than it actually happened. But for whatever reason, we know that Jesus is alive, that he's been raised from the dead. We know that in some sense Peter has seen this, but Peter... Whether he just doesn't know what to do next, whether it's because of the very real shame that he was experiencing. Because if you'll recall, Peter, before Jesus' crucifixion, looked Jesus in the face and he said, Jesus, listen, I'm your God. If everybody denies you, I will not. I will be there to the bitter end. And Jesus, with all the compassion in the world, looks at Peter and he says to him, Peter, uh, you're going to deny me. Three times before the, before the rooster even crows the next morning. And sure enough, as Jesus has foretold, this is what happens to Peter. Peter is afraid. He's afraid of the circumstances that are unfolding. He's afraid, as we see in other accounts, of what people think of him. And he denies Jesus. And so Peter's in this weird limbo because Jesus is alive again. And Peter... In this sort of weird state of not knowing what to do, Jesus is alive, but he's feeling shame, or he doesn't know what the significance of it is, goes back to the one thing that he knows. He goes back to fishing. 
And for how many of us could we, if we were to do an investigation of our own responses, could we find our version of fishing? That thing where we know, okay, God has called us higher, he's called us to more, but there's this thing that's comfortable to me. There's this thing that I can control. There's this thing that I know how to do. It's interesting in that passage that the disciples catch nothing. These professional fishermen walk away at the end of the day with nothing. Jesus provides in that moment. But so often, when all of the significance of heaven is being offered to us, when all the promises that God has for us are available to us, we will settle for the thing that we can control. We will settle. And how, like there's so many ways we do this, right? Like think about like the, the NFL playoffs just started this weekend. And you may, may not be a sports fan. But what you can observe is the, the absurdity of superstition. Right? Like the guys, like Michael Jordan wore his same practice shorts his whole career from North Carolina. And like I don't know how often he washed them. Because uh, he thought they gave him supernatural powers. And perhaps he was right. But superstition, like maybe you're a fan of a team and you have a lucky jersey or something, or you sit in a certain spot when your team is playing, and you think that that, you sitting in your living room has some impact by some cosmic vibes and waves into the universe to affect the outcome of your team's game. Yes, faith is not dead, right? We have all these ways we grasp for control, from the, from the obviously foolish and silly and harmless to the really self-harming ways we try when God seems like he's delaying or being too slow with what we think he's promised us or what he's definitely promised us. I mean, think of Abraham and Sarah. Think God has promised them a child. God has said, you, through you, all the nations on the earth will be blessed. But that promise takes time to unfold. And in that waiting period, they're like, we got this promise from God, but I'm not so sure that he is faithful. We're not so sure that he is able to do what he has sworn that he will do. And so they bring Hagar into the mix. And they introduce all kinds of conflict and strife. Now, the beauty of God is that no matter what we do, no matter how unfaithful we are, no matter how much we grasp for control, God still comes into the middle of the messes that we make, and he works his grace and his peace. And we see that in the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. That we grasp for control often with disastrous consequences. Now this does not rob us of our agency. But what we're trying to find in the midst of a life with God is what has God called us to, to be faithful and obedient in? And what has he said that he will do? And we have to trust God to do his part because we can't not do that part. Now the other way we grasp for control that we'll focus on today is we try to make peace, or we try to make peace, excuse me, we try to make peace with comfort. Now you have so many avenues available to us. Uh, I already mentioned the cookies, right? They promise pleasure or meaning or at the very least a numbing of the pain of life. Now it could be an overindulgence, right? Things that are socially accepted. Things like food. I mean, just, just you know, warm comfort food is a gift, right? But that's socially accepted even when we're overindulging in that. It can be socially, uh, overindulging in things like alcohol, social media, shopping. Those things, like, we can kind of do in plain sight, right? 
culture has terms for those things, but mostly it's, it's kind of okay. Or it might be that we're engaging in activities that we'd rather nobody else know about. We're things we think are shameful, whether it be drugs or addiction to pornography. It could be distorted focus on accumulating wealth or even experiences. It could be the notion that a relationship, whether romantic or otherwise, that uh, would, would somehow fix us. Now, at their heart, all of this is a desperate, clawing attempt to construct a peace, to make peace for ourselves that will not let us down, that will give our lives significance and purpose. And as a pastor, when I talk to folks who are wrestling with these kinds of things, when I observe these patterns in my own life or in our wider culture, my first response is not like, how stupid are you? That won't work. That's like drinking salt water. That's not the first response. My first response, generally, unless it's, like, honestly, unless it's about myself, is usually compassion. Because life is hard, right? Because our culture tells us that we can buy peace. Or if we just got to a place that if we had the right amount in our bank account, or if we had that relationship, or the relationship that we had, we're able to overcome that one glaring issue that keeps cropping up, then we would have peace. And the cultural script that we are handed tells us that we are our own, that we are completely dependent upon ourselves and what we can make for ourselves. That peace is not a gift, but a product that we either have to create within ourselves or buy it. And these are the ways we try to make peace. And the Bible has all sorts of different names and categories for this kind of futility, right? Like idols, vapor. Jesus will talk about laboring for that which does not satisfy. Jeremiah talks about building broken cisterns that can't hold water. And friends, can I say to you today that you cannot make peace for yourself. It is not something you can conjure up. Even though like our culture is just awash in this lie that we can somehow forge a peace within ourselves. Can I just say that you can't do it. But can I tell you the good news? Your absolute birthright as a child, a son, a daughter of God is his peace. And, and peace will take on different forms, but it will come to you, not in a way that's just esoteric, not in a way that's just a concept, but with the very force of Jesus' very presence. That Jesus is not just offering us a peace that is imaginary. He wants to come into the middle of it. And that will often come into places that we have, have cried and we have wet our beds with tears. That we have in this place of pain and suffering. And I, I say it with all the faith that I can muster as your pastor. That Jesus wants to bring you peace from the Father. And it is not dependent upon you. And so don't believe the lie that somehow that you have to do the right thing so that God will give you the feeling. Often the peace that we're talking about is not a feeling. It's about people. It's about, it's about God being present in such a way that, that you may not even realize it until the other side that God wants to bring you this peace. Jesus says to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not let them be afraid. Upon Jesus' resurrection, the first word that he says to his disciples is peace. 
the first word of the new world that Jesus has brought to bear by his life, death, and resurrection, peace. When we encounter Jesus in faith, when we believe, when we trust, when we obey, peace is the gift of Jesus' presence through the Spirit of God. This is what God has for us. But friends, as we're talking about faith and the blessing of faith, we have this, this impulse to over-internalize the implications of faith. Like, it, almost like me telling somebody, like if I were in a coffee shop and talking about what, what faith brings to me, and I would say, yeah, I have this sense of, of peace. Like, that would make sense to people, right? Like, people are like, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm doing over here. I'm just doing it through SoulCycle or through shopping online or whatever, you know, whatever that may be, right? Like, there, we would be speaking the same language, but we would be telling a different story. And so God very much has a peace for us that is available to us. But it's not just a peace within. It's not just a peace for us internally that no matter what, we kind of know that everything's going to work out. That's true, but it's more than that. I live on the main street in our town. And I remember so vividly the summer of 2020. And you maybe can trace those events in your mind. Some fairly significant things happened in our world. In March of 2020, the world shut down. In May of 2020, the video of George Floyd was released. So many people had to watch it. And I live on the main street in our town. I remember it vividly because our little son Silas was born in June of 2020. And only a few weeks into his life, there was a, a Black Lives Matter parade right down the, the street in front of my house. And our son was young and, you know, still aggressive. So we're just sitting on the porch, kind of participating and watching. And sort of like, I'm sort of watching this all unfold. And I must admit to you, friends, I am an eternal optimist when it comes to individuals. I believe, like I love what Pope Francis says. He says, Jesus came to save us from the lie that people can't change. But I am a bit of a pessimist when it comes to these kind of moments and movements. And I'm walking, watching this thing unfold right out in front of my house. And I want the result to be that there is real and lasting change. But I got to be honest, I'm not optimistic in this moment. And I found myself as I'm watching this, this parade down a, you know, a, a, frankly, a, a majority white town in Pennington. I'm watching this parade walk down my street. I'm just like, okay, that's great. It's great if it results in some sort of structural change. It's great if it results in people changing their lives. But I'm a bit dubious that that's what this will produce. Because just as we cannot conjure up a peace within ourselves, we cannot conjure up peace between us. It turns out that peace is not something that we can just grab onto. You see, if we don't have peace with God, we will be at war with ourselves and we will be at war with one another. And friends, it should be the most obvious thing to say that, that black lives matter. It should be the most obvious thing to say, but it's obviously not in our culture. But our culture wants to jump to, okay, let's, 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 let's do the peace thing. Let's all have a march and a parade, and there's something deeper going on. And the bad news is that I'm, I'm dubious of these kinds of movements, but the good news is I and you 
in this room have been promised that peace is our gift. That not just peace within us, but peace between us. That the Holy Spirit is wanting to forge a peace here that is a sign to the world, that is a light to the world. Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Notice that language. By grace through faith. The gift of God. Not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. So then remember. At one time you Gentiles by birth. Called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision. A circumcision made in flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. Now, okay, I know. I know when I read long segments of scripture. Again, I've told you this before that I know. That it's like, alright, check out. Alright, so check back in. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Listen to this. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us, abolishing the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself, check this out, one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both to God. In one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and he proclaimed peace to those of you who were far off and peace to those of you who were near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Now, in Ephesians 2, Paul is addressing two broad categorizations of people from the first century Roman Empire, Jews and Gentiles. And what he is doing is saying that the promises that were given to Abraham have been fulfilled in this Messiah, in Jesus. But the promises that were given to Abraham were always always about, as Paul says, creating one new humanity. That in this broad categorization, there are Jews, the the people of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those descended from that line, and there's everybody else, the Gentiles. And so Paul is trying to say that in this uh, conceptual image of the world, that he has broken down the wall which divides them. And he's trying to say that you, by being a part of this covenant people, have been invited into a new humanity. Now for the Jews of the first century, they define their cultural identity by keeping the law. Paul mentions circumcision, right? And he's sort of saying these are the cultural markers, these are the boundary markers that you have set up. But now, we're moving the boundaries to the very person of Jesus Christ. That in him, we all have access to one father by the same spirit. That in him, the dividing wall has been broken down. And friends, for us, this is a vision of peace, not just within, but a peace among. 
that just as important and just as integral to the gospel of Jesus about us finding our salvation in Jesus Christ is us living out our salvation around the table together, is being a sign that there is a new humanity being brought forth right in the midst of this passing world. That when our culture is marching for peace, they are declaring a a common human longing that there would be peace. And I so validate that. But the only way that that will come to be is in the very person of Jesus Christ. Because we struggle. We struggle to put down our privilege. We struggle to confess our brokenness. We struggle to confess our history. And these things just perpetuate. Paul is saying that our absolute birthright is to be a people of peace. Willie James Jennings, talking about this passage, says, Just as Torah formed Israel's identity, establishing human life in the presence of God, so Jesus intends the formation of new humanity in the presence of God, listening to his speaking through the Spirit. This new biracial humanity, Jew and Gentile, metaphorically speaking, would be the basis for peace. He then says, these disciples of Jesus love and desire one another. And that desire for each other is the basis of their ethical action in the worlds of allegiances and kinships. And you know what Dr. Jennings is saying there? He's calling out something that, especially in May of 2020, was going on. Is that people, especially within the church, were not listening He says, these disciples of Jesus love and desire one another. And when accusations are flying or when different perspectives were flying, a lot of people had issue and problems listening and just being like, huh. Believing their brother and sister in Christ and just saying, I know that that might be frustrating. And friends, can I tell you, can I speak specifically to my white brothers and sisters when, when, a, when a person of color narrates their experience, can you just stop defending yourself? Can you just listen? Can you start there? Again, that's not an end in and of itself, but it is a call to be a people of peace. And to see, like, not get defensive, not start riling up, but just to say, okay, that experience is different from mine. We are called to be a people of peace. Jesus is desiring within Ephesians 2, one of the primary, by grace you have been saved through faith, one of the passages that we call to mind when we think about our faith in Jesus. And he's saying right there, you've been called to be a new humanity. When we look at the current state of the church, we're not that far off from Dr. Martin Luther King, whom we celebrate this week, reminded everybody that Sunday morning at 11 a.m. is the most segregated hour in America. Martin Luther King says, It is to the everlasting shame of the American church that white Christians developed a system of racial segregation within the church and inflicted so many indignities upon, this is his word, its Negro worshipers that they had to go out and organize their own churches. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. In his flesh he has made both into one, broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us, abolishing the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in the place of two. Friends, my hope is that you can see that the peace that faith promises is not just personal. It is personal. It is a peace with God that has been won for you by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
It's not just communal. It's not just about other people. I think, I think so many of us do this. We conceptualize, yeah, God loves everyone, which means that God loves everyone but you. God loves you. God gave his son for you. But it's not just about the individual and the personal. It's also about our life together. And so many, so many of the problems arise when we fail to see that the peace that Jesus is inviting us to is just as integral in the way that we live our lives together as it is to the way that we experience God in the confines of our heart. We are people who are called to embody peace. And it is hard, friends. It is not easy. If it were easy, our culture would have figured it out by now. But what we find, what we see, is that we continually spiral in these uh, places where we come back to the place where we just were. If you saw a young man named Keenan Anderson, in a, in a video not that much unlike George Floyd, just this past week. And he used the verb, they're trying to George Floyd me. I can't believe that's a verb. Friends, what I say to you is that we have to be the people who say we are going to live as a response to God's gift of peace, both individually, that God loves us, yes and amen, that we are his children, but we collectively are his children. Martin Luther King again says, do we want peace in this world? Man cannot do it by himself, and God is not going to do it by himself. We see this throughout the scriptures, right? Is that, yes, God could do everything on his own. He is God. But for whatever reason, he refuses to. He calls us as his co-heirs, his partners, his adopted children to live in light of his peace. And so, we've covered a lot of ground here today. We've covered the interior. We've covered the exterior. And so, as we come to the table to be embodiments of this peace that Jesus has for us, I just simply have a couple questions for you to contemplate. Again, this is the moment, usually in the sermon, where you're like, okay, here's all the action steps you can take. But the language that we've used over and over again is the language of gift. The language that God is giving us his presence so that we can receive this gift. And so we come each week to the incarnated embodiment of a gift. That through Christ Jesus, giving of his body, and his blood, he has made peace for us. And so the first question I have for you today is just on the individual end of the spectrum. Friends, where are you allowing the lies of shame? Where are you allowing the, the habits that you think will make peace for you to put you at odds with God? Because can I tell you the truth? You're not at odds with God from his perspective. God sees you with unfailing, undying love. That is how he sees you. And he puts that call to you, the call of his blood and his body, and just says, it's free, here, take it, but we so easily reject it. And so where are you turning away from God's gift of grace towards something so much smaller, towards vapor, towards idols, towards that which will not satisfy? God has peace for you going to invite the band forward. And I want to pray just as a, as a collection of us as Ecclesia, friends, as we talk about the lived experience of peace, 
as it pertains to our different cultural, our different racial, our different socioeconomic identities. Friends, none of this is easy. It would be so much easier just to be a church of one specific subset of the population. It's just easier. In fact, the church tried it in the latter half of the 20th century. Just said the multicultural, the multi-stream approach is too hard. And it is hard. Peace is not easy. But as we gather around this table, we see the call from Ephesians 2 that we've been called to be a new humanity. We've seen that the peace is not something that we make on our own, but it is a peace that we receive. And so, friends, I just invite you, let us commit to being a people of peace. Let us commit to doing the hard work, to doing the work of confession, of listening as a starting point, not as an end in and of itself. And saying, God, make us an embodiment of this hope that so clearly the world is fostering. Make us a vision. Not because we're special, not because we somehow will be the ones that get it right, but because you're here. Your presence is here. And where he is present, he has broken down any dividing wall that divides us. The hostility, the brokenness, and he's saying, we are a new humanity. Come on, that's a gift. A gift that our culture longs for and a gift that we were called to embody. So as we come to this table, friends, I give you two calls and I acknowledge there's the interior, there's the exterior. But in him, through Jesus Christ, we have peace. On the night that Jesus was arrested, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And as you hear those words here, broken for you, you individually, but also here, you all, us as a people. He took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood poured out for the sins of the world that as often as we eat, as often as we drink, we declare his life, death, and resurrection until he comes again.